Welcome to week seven of Revelation. And if you've been traveling with us, you know that seven is the perfect number. So that means this is the perfect service and the perfect sermon. Uh, You can tell it won't be in a few minutes. Um, Well, this morning, we're going to look at unsealing the seals. But before we get there, let me remind you of our goals, because you need to remember these. They're going to come into play today. Our first goal is to remove a little of the mystery and mystique concerning this book. Some people don't want to read it, don't want to discuss it. Other people want to spend their whole lives digging into the details. Uh, We may actually add a little to the mystery and mystique today, but that's not our goal. Our goal is to look at some of the main themes. And you're going to have to keep that in mind today because we're not going to drill down into all the details about the seals. You're not going to leave knowing exactly the answers to all of your questions. Frankly, because I don't think that that's how apocalyptic literature works. I think when apocalyptic literature is, that's what Revelation is, right? Revealing. When God does that, the revelations, the visions create impressions. They're not for us to draft out and dig down into the weeds and get all the details to create impressions. And we're going to look at some of that today. But not just to know the main themes. Our goal is to live out the main themes. And so we just don't want to know the facts, pour all the facts and biblical date into our brains so that we know seals and trumpets and bowls. The goal is to live out the gospel. What are all of the details pointing to? What impression should motivate us to live out the gospel and follow Jesus more closely? And the last of our goals, the fourth, goes something like this, that we will love our brothers and sisters more faithfully. A paraphrase we'll have some hermeneutical humility. We're not going to think that we know everything and everybody who disagrees with me is basically an idiot. Uh, maybe some of them are, but, the, but that's not because of their view. We need to recognize there are good, godly people on all sides of these discussions. And so we're going to look at a few different views today. The goal is not to load your gun with ammunition to prove you're right. The goal is to say, You know, I don't understand a whole lot more than I do understand. I do know some things. Let's live out of the things that we do know. Well, I have a little bit of a confession to make. And that is that I've been at Calvary over 30 years now. As best I can tell, I preached like 1,500 sermons. I struggled more this week than probably any week before. Not because I think this stuff is real dense and hard to get to. I love all that. My struggle was, how do I communicate this stuff in ways that point to Jesus and uplift him and create community and unity rather than division and polarization? So it's been a little bit of a struggle. And here's what I want to say to you. You can test me on this. If you leave this service feeling more arrogant, pompous, and proud, we failed. But if you leave maybe with a a little more humility, a little more, uh, I don't know how all that works, and a little bit more uh, love for Jesus and love for your brother and sister, then whether or not you know a whole lot more details, I think we were successful. Well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to start with a little bit of an overview. I was going to call this uh, overview a professorial panoramic perspective of the parousia, but I'm not going to call it that. I'm going to call it overview. All right, so what we got. So here's the overview that um, you need to know. First of all, let's think of the context. Okay, two points to the context that you need to remember. 
First of all, where have we been? Well, where we've been, we looked at letters in Revelation 2 and 3, letters to the seven churches. And the one theme that came through repeatedly in the letters was the theme of persecution. Christians were being persecuted, not just physically, economically, and physically. Their lives were being pushed. They were being stretched. Some of them were actually being killed. Persecution's the context. And it's almost as if Jesus says, what do my people need that are experiencing such trouble, trial, tribulation? I know. They need to catch a glimpse of who I am and who's in control. Which really brings us to the second part of the context, chapters 4 and 5. We looked at them last week. And that would be jurisdiction. And we looked last week and said, there's a throne. And that throne is above all other thrones. And that throne's occupied. The father sits on the throne and the son doesn't, doesn't come from the outside to the throne. The son approaches from the throne, right? One with the father. And that lion lamb takes the scroll and now beginning in chapter 6, he opens the seals and unrolls God's victory. He unroll, unrolls God's plan. He unrolls all the promises that will now be fulfilled because of his work. Well, with that context in mind, take your Bibles, your phone, whatever you use, turn to Revelation 6, only 17 verses. I'm going to read them all, and uh, don't get lost in the details. I know you have lots of questions as we go. Uh, we won't answer most of them, but follow along as I read. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures saying aloud in a voice like thunder, Come! I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like the voice of the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over the fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our, and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat, goat's hair, and the whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and rocks, 
Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? You got that now? We're good. We can move on to chapter 7. <laughs> yeah. Lots of stuff. Remember, to create an impression more than dig down and, you know, kind of um, drill into all the details. Uh, here's how we're going to start. Let's look at some areas of agreement. Lots of disagreement. We'll mention a couple things, but let's look at some areas of agreement. Um, here are the things that uh, we talk about here. Absolutes, convictions, and preferences, right? Areas of agreement. Absolutes, we say, are things that are clearly and regularly taught. Here's a reality. The things in Revelation chapter 6 are not clearly and regularly taught. In fact, they're taught here, maybe a few places in the Old Testament. They're not clear. They're weird and strange, right? Uh, so we're talking about things you may have um, a conviction about. That's fine. You may have a preference. I think most of us would have a preference. We talk about absolutes, convictions, and preferences. And so it, when it comes to areas of disagreement, they obviously would not be an absolute. And so be careful about making your convictions or preferences absolutes and then causing division in the body. We know God wants us to be together. All right, so here's a short list, a short list, list of areas of agreements. All right, here we go. Number one, Jesus will return. That's an absolute. We don't know all the details surrounding that. The second coming is an absolute. It's clearly and regularly taught. You can't be family and not believe that. Second thing, all people will be judged. Did you recognize that in the chapter? So judgment's coming. Justice is coming. And the reality is that we all deserve that justice. We deserve to be on the wrong side of that. But because of God's provision in the Lamb, Jesus, our Passover Lamb, paid our penalty. Thirdly, there will be separation between Christians and non-Christians, between believers and unbelievers, however you want to phrase that. Everybody believe, right? That's clearly regularly taught, believed across denominational lines. Christians go to a new heaven and a new earth. That's how the revelation ends. And non-Christians, separation from God and alienation. They are areas of agreement, right? Can we say yes? Yeah, good. Everybody believes on that. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about some areas of disagreement. Oh, no, we have another agreement one. Um, uh, to give you, you know, when you go to a football game, you need to know the players. So I made a little sheet for you. Next one. Um, let's talk about our two teams. We have Team Dragon and Team Lamb. So as you go through Revelation, everybody agrees which players are on which team. And so uh, you may not know all the details, but we do know the two teams. Here they are. Team Dragon, uh, if you're reading one of these names, you know that's Team Dragon. Babylon, dragon, beast one, beast two, one from the sea, one from the land. Jezebel, Nicolaitans, bam. That's, that, they're the, that's the bad team. That, that's Yankees, cowboys, right? Bad team. Um, lamb's team, right? Team lamb, here we go. New Jerusalem. The lamb, obviously. God on the throne. The witnesses. We'll talk about them in a few weeks. The woman, angels, 24 elders, four living creatures, seven spirits, right? Holy, team dra dragon, team lamb. Keep that in mind. That'll help you when you read through the book. You get lost. Okay, two teams. Here's how I go. All right, areas of uh, disagreement now. Now, we need a lot of space here. I need grace, and you need grace to listen to me. Um, you need to know right up front, I love all this. Most of you probably don't. 
which means you're going to have to hang in there for the next few minutes. But I do look for the big picture. What I want you to know is um, there are good, godly, really smart people, smarter than us, on all sides of these issues. So it's not a test of orthodoxy. It's not a mark of whether they're really Christian or not. Good people trying to figure out what the Bible teaches on all sides. We talked about four approaches to the book before. We talked about the preterist approach, historicist approach, futuristic, idealistic, right? Four approaches. But here's what I thought. Rather than just tell you the words, let me make an attempt to show you, right? Some of you are more visual. So here's my uh, attempt at showing you. Uh, So I drew two axes, if you're a math person, that's the X and Y axis. So here's how it works. The x-axis is going to be the timeline, past, present, future. So future's kind of in the middle, right? You got past, present, future. See that? You got that? Um, the vertical axis is going to be literal on the bottom. So these people are going to read things in the text, and they're going to say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know exactly what that means, right? When the sun gets dark, that means you can't see when you go outside. When the moon turns to blood, that means it's red, right? Um, so D, I'm going to dig into the details On the top of the y-axis is um, a symbolic view. This view would be much more impressionistic. They're not going to dig down and try to um, line up, correlate every detail to what's going on, either historically or in the future or even today. They're going to say, no, um, John is communicating things that Jesus showed him, and he doesn't have words to really describe that, and so he's creating an impression. All right, next slide. Here's where we go. Hang in and I'll tell you what it means. Here we go. If this is confusing, take a nap for 30 seconds. Um, Okay, remember past, present, and future. Notice, the preterists are on the literal end of the continuum, right? They're literal. They're going to line up the details of the text. So they're going to line up the four horsemen, right? They're going to line up what they mean with what happened in the past. Right after Jesus, well, we'll talk about this later. Right after Jesus was crucified and resurrected, a lot of the details are going to be first century. Literal details, they're going to interpret it literally. Futurists are just like preterists in that they're going to look at the details literally. So they're going to say, yeah, it didn't happen in the past though, right? It didn't happen yet. It's going to happen in the future, but all those details I'm taking literally. I'm going to look at what happened and say, this is how it's going to be, futurist. Got that? Historicists is probably a little above that because they have to say things like this. The seven-year tribulation is not literal seven years. That's going to be the time between the first and second coming. So they're not quite as literal as the first two, but they're going to be along the timeline between the first and second coming. Now, if you're talking about the idealistic group or the symbolic group, they're not on the literal end. They're on the symbolic end. They're going to say, yeah, impressions, recurring themes. We're not looking for things that happened in detail. We're not looking for future to happen with all the details. But creating impressions, just like often, you know, you read in the Old Testament, impressions. All right, got it? So that's how it works. Now, how many of you would be interested, I hesitate this next time. (laughs) Some of you think, I knew he was cockeyed, right? I knew he was unbalanced. Um, But okay, here's, 
Now, I need to say this. It really doesn't matter what I believe, right, when it comes to these details. Calvary Church does not have a position. So you can be a preterist, a historicist, a futurist. You can be an idealist. It doesn't matter. But it's maybe helpful for you to see how I'm going to be, have been, and will work with the text. Here's how it works. When I come to a passage, whether it's in Revelation or anywhere, I need to ask, and any good person trying to understand text would say, what did it mean to the original readers, right? So John's writing to seven actual churches that had people in them. What did they understand based on what John wrote? Now, that may not be the end of it, but that's where I have to start. I I then look and say, yeah, but you know what? Um, Apocalyptic literature is impressionistic, not detail-driven. And so I'm going to tip that thing up a little bit, and here's what I'm going to say. I think all of the views, preterist, historicist, um, futurist, idealist, I think they all have positive contributions. I think they all have some problems. Of course, my view doesn't have any problems, right? My view's perfect. <laughs> no, but at least I'm trying to say, how can we maximize the strengths, minimize some of the weaknesses? Now, here's how that works in practice. I'll, I'll let you know how I think some, some prophecy works. If you read some Old Testament prophets, prophecy, here's what you find. There's often an initial fulfillment. But that initial fulfillment almost becomes a model, almost becomes a type that is repeated. It recurs, but then an ultimate fulfillment comes. So, for example, in the Old Testament, read Isaiah. I just finished reading Jeremiah. Read Isaiah. Here's what happens. Um, Babylon is in the crosshairs, right? A lot of the prophecies in the Old Testament are against Assyria, against Babylon, They're literally fulfilled the first time. But Babylon becomes a model. Babylon becomes a symbol. Babylon becomes a recurring theme for God's judgment on wickedness. And what do we find in Revelation? Ultimate Babylon that winds up getting destroyed. Here's the problem that I get into when people speculate and they start to say, oh, I know what what the last one's... I don't know what the last one's going to be. Here's what I do know. When the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in the first century, they thought that was the end of the world. When Hitler was conquering Europe, they thought that was the end of the world. My guess is people in the Middle East today, they think this sure seems like the end of the world. I don't know when the ultimate's coming. My job is not to pinpoint the last one. We'll know in hindsight when the ultimate one comes. I'm going to say there usually is an initial, initial fulfillment That initial fulfillment often becomes a model, often becomes a theme. Then the ultimate will come. But from our perspective, we can't see the ultimate. Here's a New Testament example. In 1 John 2, I think it's like 18, John says, this is the last hour. That's kind of interesting, right? The last hour. And that was like 2,000 years ago. The last hour. And some of you are looking for the Antichrist. I tell you, Antichrists have already come. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be an ultimate one. It means that there was an initial fulfillment for John in 1 John, right? Those people leaving the congregation, those people leaving the assembly, they were anti-Christ, right? Instead of Jesus, right? Opposed to Jesus. But they're, they're going to become a model. Antichrists are coming. 
Yeah, will there be an ultimate one? Yeah, I guess there will, but I don't know when the ultimate one's coming. We don't know from our perspective. Make sense? Oh, you don't have to agree with it, but, that, but that's kind of my approach as we go. I'll try to keep you up to speed on some other views as we go through, just so you don't think it has to be my way. Okay, two issues we have to talk about if we're flying high here. The first one is tribulation, or the tribulation. Now, what in the world is the tribulation? All right, interestingly, that word appears often in the Bible. It becomes a technical term for some people. It becomes a general term for other people. Um, Tribulation is a time of trouble, a time of difficulty. All right, so let's go back to our picture, and, uh, and let's see if we can put our views on the timeline. Where did the preterist put the tribulation? Right there. I think it's there. Go ahead, put it on. Next one. There we go. Right, right after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. That's the tribulation, the great tribulation. That happened then. Historicists are going to say, no, no, no. Tribulation is not a technical term. And, and I do want to say to you, it's not a technical term. Context will determine what tribulation means. So if you're a futurist and you think there will be a seven-year tribulation, that's fine. But you can't use the word to determine where that is. Context will have to tell you that. Now here's an, so go, no, put, put my picture up there still. Go back. I'm not done. <laughs> Notice a historicist their view of tribulation is between the two comings. The preterist, it's tucked in right after first coming. Historicist, between the comings. Now, it's hard to see this on the, on the chart, or it's not hard to see, but I sh- I, we should have done something different maybe. Notice idealist goes further back than Jesus. Recurring themes. And so idealists are going to say, yeah, these themes, these recurring themes of tribulation... They were before Jesus, and then Jesus maybe accentuated it, and they continue. Now you're saying, well, where's the futurist one? Yeah, well, we need another arrow for that, right? So here we go. Here's the futurist one. I think, next one. Okay, yeah, you need a rapture for the futurist. Here we go. All right, here's how the futurist ones go. All right, now um, the tribulation... Will it be the period of time between the rapture and the second coming? Now, the other groups, preterist, historicist, idealist, they do not have a rapture as a second event from the second coming. It's all the same event. So the rapture and second coming are the same event. Futurists, at least of the dispensational variety, they're going to separate them and put the tribulation between those two. All right. Well, um, what's the rapture then? Well, for um, futurists, right, particular dispensations, they're real, they, they love talking about the rapture. Historicists, preterists, um, idealists, they're not big on the rapture. Um, they, they may believe in it, right, but it's the same event as the second coming. Here, here's what you need to know. The word rapture does not appear in Revelation. In fact, the word rapture does not appear in the Bible, um, that, that doesn't mean the concept doesn't. I think we have the Thessalonian verses. All right, so here's where the concept of rapture comes from, right? It comes from 1 Thessalonians 4.15. So let me read them, and then we'll talk about them. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive 
um, who are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Euphemism, die. We won't precede those who die. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, the voice of the archangel, and with a trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up. There's the word, caught up, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That's where that idea comes from. Now, where did the word rapture come from? Here's where it came from. Um, It comes from the caught up language. When the Bible was translated into Latin, when Latin became kind of the main language of the world, not Greek, they translated caught up by the word raptio. We get the word raptor from that. All right, what is a raptor? A raptor is a bird that flies down, seizes its prey, and swoops it away. So raptor becomes bird swoops it away, right? Rapture, Jesus comes to swoop away his people. Got that? That really is like the place for rapture. Um, The context in 1 Thessalonians is about people who died. The context is not what's going to happen to all of this. And often rapture is presented as a secretive event. It didn't sound real secretive when I read those verses, right? We got trumpets and loud voices. That sounds more like second coming, which is why the other group's going to say, well, well, it's the same event. Um, Futurists, dispensational types, they're going to say, no, 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 different event. Here's, I don't know. But and let, me, let me quiz you to show you how that... That view is probably the majority view in America. It's not the majority view in the world. It certainly wasn't majority view historically. Um, so let me ask you a couple questions. All, of the, all that stuff between 6 and 19 is uh, often perceived as the tribulation, right? It's not a party, right? Things are really bad if you read those verses. When's that tribulation stuff happening? So here's the quiz. If all hell breaks loose... Which view would you prefer? Would you rather be here through all that hell breaking loose? Would you rather be here for part of it? Or would you rather escape all that stuff? Which would you rather be? Well, it's kind of significant then. In America, we don't like to experience much. So we're going to go with the view in which we're not here and all the bad people are left behind. See how that works? So... um, I'm not trying to diminish your view. I'm not telling you which view to believe. I'm trying to say, you know what? There are complex issues here. If you're only going to work with the text, you could come up with any of the positions that we've looked at, and they would be valid. Don't separate. Don't become dogmatic in your perspective when there are good, godly, smart people on different sides of the same coin. All right, we're good? Let's talk about the seven seals then. Uh, We read about the seven seals, and... uh, The lamb, right, opens the first seal. We've got that verse, we read that in verse 1. I watched the lamb as he opened the first of the seven seals, and I heard the four living creatures like come, okay? Um, So we're not going to dive into all the details. Here's a chart. Um, There are the seven seals. And it's kind of interesting. When you read through the seven seals, seven trumpets and seven bowls, um, you're going to find lots of similarities, Lots of commonalities. In fact, it goes like this. The, the, the sevens are always divided this way. Four, two, and one. The first four are always what's happening on earth. 
The second two, kind of what's happening in heaven. And the seventh one is actually not a one. It's actually the doorway into the next thing. And so, for example, the the seventh seal actually is the beginning of the seven trumpets. And the seventh trumpet is kind of the beginning of the seven bowls. So how does it all fit together? Here's what they mean, right? And different people take different views. Here's what they mean from my perspective. Go back to the chart. All right, the white horse, the first one, that means conquest, conquest. Now, there are some people who say, no, 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 white horse, Jesus rides a white horse in Revelation 19, therefore, the white horse has to be Jesus. And that means the gospel's going to the whole, no, it doesn't mean that, right? It's obvious in the context, it's conquest, and it's evil conquest, it's not good con- conquest, and there are a number of reasons for that. Notice, one of the, right, one of the angels right, is saying, come, you don't find angels commanding Jesus around too much, right? Um, so it's conquest. Secondly, after conquer, right, going to conquer, well, what's that? War follows, right? The wet horse, red horse bloodshed, black horse famine, right? It's real expensive to buy food. People are starving to death. Pale horse, pale rider, death in Hades in his wake, remember? Um, okay, um, rampant death. Then we switch. That's four, what's happening on earth. We shift gears. Now we're in heaven. Souls of the martyrs crying for justice, and a call for patience. There's an earthquake. And did you notice the end of chapter six? It kind of sounds like the end of the world, doesn't it? Um, let me read this. Verse 12. I watched as he opened the, fifth, the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. That's end of the world language. The sun turned black, sackcloth made of, like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. The stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs dropped from a fig tree and when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. That's end of the world stuff. And you're going to find that. At the end of the seven seals, the end of the seven trumpets, the end of the seven bowls, at the end of each one, it sounds like the end of the world. Oh, and that brings us to a different view of how it's working. Let me give you some different views as to how the seals work, right? Uh, next slide. Approaches. The preterists are going to say the, sign, the seals, trumpets, and bowls are sequential and specific. Historists are going to say they're sequential, they're in order, and specific. Futurists, they're sequential and in the future. Notice for a futurist, um, you know, if you've got rapture, seven-year tribulation, you've got to do all of that. Seals, trumpets, bowls, all of that in a seven-year period. Now, you may say, well, that doesn't... Well, look at how quickly things are unraveling in the Middle East now. Maybe seven years is the right amount of time. I I don't know. All right? Idealists, they're not sequential. Um, They're impressions. And the language after this, after this, that doesn't mean after this chronologically. That means after this, John's getting a new image. John's getting a new vision. The after this relates to the visions. All right, so let me show you some pictures of what this may look like. Are they like this, sequential, chronological? Or are they like this? Um, Expanding, right? And so the seventh seal becomes the trumpet. Seven trumpet becomes the bowls. Or are they like this? Where they're different views of the same thing. Do the the trumpets and the bowls, are they recapitulating? Are they the same things from a slightly different perspective? Right? Lots of different views. Keep the main thing the main thing. Well, how about the 144,000 from Revelation chapter 7? Uh, let me read a little of this as we uh, come in for a landing here. 
After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land. I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who'd been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. If you look a little further, then you see a great multitude. Look at verse 9. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every tribe, people, language, standing on the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, holding palm branches in their hands. And if you read the rest of the chapter, they're doing what were presented later in Revelation, believers do through all eternity. So who are the 144,000? Who's the great multitude? Okay, 144,000 seems fairly obvious to me, difference of opinion. Here's what it seems like to me. How do you get 144,000? 12 times 12 times 1,000. That's how you get 144,000. What does 12 times 12 remind you of? 12 tribes, people of God, Old Testament. 12 apostles, people of God from the New Testament, times 1,000, a complete picture of all of them together. It seems to me, what's going on in the 144,000, that's it. Remember, they're on earth, right? They are God's people on earth. And notice what we're told. They have the seal of God. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. That seal is the Holy Spirit, right? They've got the Spirit of God. God knows his people. I was trying to think of how that may work, and my grandsons like to play hide and seek. And um, here's what I was, I was thinking this week. You know what? It would be really easy to find people that were hiding from you in the dark if they wore glow-in-the-dark pajamas. Maybe that's what the seal is, right? And we do know God knows his people. We do know you can't hide. They've got this seal. God knows his people. And what do we learn in the, in the first part of chapter 7? God protects them. God loves them, right? 12 times 12 times 1,000. God's people protected. Shift gears to the great multitude. Charles's opinion. You have your own. I think the 144,000 and the great multitude, the same group of people. God's people on earth protected, God's people in heaven worshiping and praising through all eternity. People from every nation, tribe, and tongue gathering together. Um, you don't have to agree with me. You don't have to agree with these different views. You do have to agree with this. Jesus is coming back. Human beings all deserve judgment and condemnation. The Lamb of God is the only way that we're going to find forgiveness. You have to believe that. I sat at my desk this week and made a list. I'm going to share you, share with this, some of this with you. I made a list of things I don't know. Uh, I'm only going to share a couple things. I, I don't know most things, right? And so, so here's some things I don't know. I don't know why Penn State can't beat Ohio State. <laughs> but I think that has something to do with Franklin. I know it does. Sorry, Phil. I don't know if the Phillies will beat the Diamondbacks, but it seems like we're getting closer. I don't know which view of Revelation is correct. I don't know. I don't know whether the conflict in Israel now with Hamas and the terrorists, I don't know whether that's going to snowball into World War III. I don't know. I don't know if we're going to have a mild winter. I don't know how, I'm, how long I'm going to live. I don't know what's going to happen this next year. I don't know what's going to happen, to, I don't know what's going to happen today. But here are some things I do know. I know that there's a throne in heaven, and that throne's above all other thrones. 
and that throne's occupied. So whatever happens here, as dark as it may look, I know there's a throne in heaven and a loving, sovereign God sits on that throne. I know that judgment's coming and I deserve to be judged and condemned. But there's a lamb in heaven who died for my sins and I've been acquitted, not because I'm innocent, but because he paid for me. I know that there are two teams and I know which team will win. Team Lamb. I know that I've got responsibilities between now and when I check out. I've got responsibilities as a, as a husband, a father, grandfather, a teaching pastor at Calvary Church. I need to live in those responsibilities. And I also know this. I'd be a whole lot better off if I lived out of the things I know rather than spend forever trying to wrestle with the things I don't know. So here's what I know. There's a lamb He's unrolling seals today. And that lamb is also my shepherd. I know this. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I don't know a whole lot more than I know. But what I know will see me through today, this week, and until I check out and Jesus takes me home. Let's pray. Father, we confess that that often we spend lots of time and energy wrestling with things we don't know, and quite frankly, things you tell us we can't know. Lord, help us to live out of the things we do know. Help us to live out of the responsibility to be witnesses, not trying to figure out the details and arguing and fighting and dividing and being polarized, Lord, help us to gather in unity around the Lamb who is the Lion, whose unrolling history has and will forever. And Lord, help us to live out of that. We pray in the name of the Lion and the Lamb. Amen.